Father, we do pause just to thank you because you're good. We pause to thank you because we love you. We thank you because you first loved us. Thank you, Jesus, for grace and patience and mercy. God, we want today to slow down, to take a deep breath, and to remember those things. Your mercy, your grace, your love for us. And so, God, I pray that you would remind us and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we've been discussing Mark's gospel now for quite a while. And what we refer to as Mark's gospel is really just Mark's autobiography. It's, it's his account of Jesus' gospel. Remember, the word gospel is really not a word that communicates ordinary information. In, in English, we translate it just good news. But it's not good news as in ordinary news, like daily news. No, this is like life-shaping, earth-shattering news. One commentator says it's the kind of news that changes your life forever. It's massive news. The closest thing we come in, in our American experience to a gospel proclamation is what happens every four years in November where a new president is named. That's big news that, that we all recognize is going to shift things for us. And, and that's the kind of thing that this word gospel, the weight that it carries with us. And, and you need to know, and I'm sure that you understand this, that there is an enormous difference between news and advice. News is information past tense about something that's happened that, that you can just hear and listen to and embrace and agree with. But advice, it carries with it a weight of expectation and responsibility. And for us as followers of Jesus, what we are invited to do is to embrace good news, not just to attempt to adhere to a list of good advice. There's a difference. And sometimes for me personally, I have to stop myself and just slow down and take an assessment and, and ask myself, what is it that I'm viewing this to be? Me choosing to follow Jesus, would I really classify it with the, the messaging that goes on internally, with the messaging that I'm preaching to myself in my own heart, with my actions and the weight and responsibility that I carry? Do I just simply view it as news that I get to embrace and believe or as a list of requirements, of good advice that I feel the weight of? Because for me, there's something naturally that takes place in me that I wish wasn't true or wasn't present in me, and that's that naturally I tend to shift the good news of the gospel into simply being some form of good advice, where it's just telling me what I am obligated to do, where I feel the weight and pressure of doing these things so that God is pleased with me and looks my direction. And, and I don't know beneath the surface what the motivation or the root system of that is. I don't know if it's pride and that I want to feel like I've earned and deserved it? Or I don't know if it's really rooted in fear, the fact that I know that I haven't, I haven't earned and don't deserve it. I don't know what the roots of it are, but I know for me, and maybe it's true for you, that I can take the beauty of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for me, that I'm just meant to believe and embrace, and I can shift and transform it, I can distort it, and turn it into just good advice. I can turn it into a weight and a burden where Jesus said, no, 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 take my yoke upon you for my burden is light. My yoke is easy. You see, there's such a difference between every other religion and Christianity because every other religion is essentially advice, whereas Christianity is news. It's not a list of requirements of what you have to do to reach and please God. Your job is to believe and receive. Yes, to repent, to say, I was wrong in my thinking Jesus, and I turn your direction to embrace what you have done for me. 
Now, Jesus, it tells you in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, that he went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The good news for Jesus was connected to a kingdom message. Remember, not just a religious or churchy term, gospel, earth-shattering news. Uh, this, this political term that was being used, not a religious term, that Jesus uses to say that something is shifting. That term always used speaking about a king or a kingdom proclamation. And the message of Jesus' kingdom is that he came to take back creation and to set up his kingdom again. His goal is not merely for you or me to be forgiven. His goal is redemption and restoration. Yes, it's adoption of us, but it's making all things new again so that we can be with him forever in the way that Adam and Eve were with him in the Garden of Eden. And the message of the kingdom is not that everything will be easy today if we follow Jesus. It's that everything will be made right one day in our tomorrow. That's the promise of this kingdom message. And slow down with me just for a minute as we get rolling. Just slow down to think about the beauty of Jesus' gospel. The unique beauty of it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might receive the righteousness of God in Christ. That is so amazing that that's what Christ came to do. Like that story, the, the famous story, I believe it's Mark Twain's story, The Prince and the Pauper, where the prince leaves the palace to go live outside of the safety of the walls and to go live amongst the people, and he will take on the garment of the pauper and take on the position of the pauper and give in exchange for his identity, give his own identity, take my robe, take my place in the palace, and the two exchange so that the prince can experience what it's like to be the pauper. But when that happened, the pauper, the poor man, he began to experience what it was like to be the prince. That's what the king of heaven has done for us. Jesus leaving the comforts of heaven, the security there, entering into our experience, taking in not just the human experience of brokenness, but taking my personal rebellion, my sin upon himself, and paying for it so that I could be clothed in his righteousness, so that I could enter the palaces and belong as a co-heir with Christ in the household of God. He took all that was wrong about me and he paid for it, and I am given all that is right about him and am rewarded. I please God because of it. That's an amazing thing. There's such beauty in that. That's what we believe as followers of Jesus. We believe that because of that, that Christ is in us. Your Bible says it in Colossians. It says this mystery hidden from the ages. Think about all throughout the ages, centuries, millennia of people, human beings separated from God, humans, living people who, who are made in the image of God, being afraid of God, separated from him because of judgment and justice and, and separating themselves and one man once a year entering into the tabernacle and later the temple with a sacrifice covered in blood to say, take us innocent substitute in our place. We know that, that we deserve to have our lives ended, our blood shed, but instead take this other one in our place. Would you cover our sin once again? Would you have judgment pass over us? For millennia, that was as close as humanity would get as they'd come near to the tabernacle or near to the temple and one guy once a year would go into that place covered in blood saying, would you forgive us again? But the Bible says the mystery that none of them saw coming is that Christ is now in you, the hope of glory. 
Because of what Jesus has done for you, the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices, you are now covered in his blood. Judgment is passed over you so that you now don't just have free access to go and see God, be with him, but now God is in you. He's in you, Christ in you. But it's amazing. The gospel also tells me that I am now in Christ. It's not just that Christ now resides in me, but I am now in him. You can't see Trevor's breakfast because Trevor's breakfast is in Trevor. All you see is Trevor. My breakfast is probably more interesting to look at, but you just get to see me because it is in Trevor. I am in Christ. When the Father looks my direction, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. When he looks my direction, he sees the goodness and the, the, the love and the perfection of Jesus. He doesn't see my brokenness because I am in Christ. In Scripture, it says we are clothed in his righteousness. Do you understand the beauty of this gospel, the thing that we embrace, the beauty of knowing Jesus and being known by him? In fact, think about it. Christ's work for us was so complete in accomplishing all that was required of us that the scriptures tell us that we are now seated with Christ in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. That his work on the cross on my behalf was so perfect and so complete that it leaves our future so secure that essentially, actually, literally, I have already been justified and today am united with God. And the reality of my future is the experience of my presence that I'm no longer at enmity with God, that I'm seated with him in heavenly places. That's not just a future hope. It is a present reality in, a in the life of a follower of Jesus. This is the beauty of the gospel of grace. That he has done all of that for you while you were still a sinner. Christ has died for you. That he demonstrated his own love. He proved it once and for all while we were at enmity with him. Your Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Greek word for wages are, is a soldier's rations. It's painting the picture that you and I were at enmity with God, fighting against him. What we deserved and earned, our paycheck, was judgment. That's what the wages of sin is. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. This is the gospel. This is so different in every way than any other religion because it's not requirement. It's not advice. It's news of what Christ has done for us. And it's important that we don't allow the beauty of the gospel to be tainted. It's important that we don't allow the message of the gospel to become distorted. Not just in what we preach to someone else, but even what we preach to ourselves. Listen, in our story today, Jesus is about to interact with the religious leaders regarding his miracles, where they're going to come and push on him. And then once he's alone with his disciples, he's going to whisper a warning. It's a rather odd warning. But that warning is about our, 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 uh, our capacity, our tendency even, to dilute and distort the beauty of Jesus' work on our behalf, the beauty of the gospel. And so we'll look together at them coming to him about his miracles and then Jesus whispering this warning. Look in your Bible at Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with Jesus. Seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, 
Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign should be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then Jesus charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned amongst themselves, saying, It's because we forgot bread? <laughs> Why is Jesus telling us, beware? Is he poking fun at the fact that we are in such a hurry to get on the boat because Jesus seems to have so many conflicting emotions about the religious leaders pressing him again publicly that he just says, we're out of here and we had no time to spare and we didn't get bread. And now Jesus is saying, beware of, are you bringing this up because we all spaced out? But Jesus, knowing this, he's aware of this, that that's their thought. You said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Jesus, knowing then that they looked and said, is it because we forgot the bread? He then said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke five loaves for 5,000? How many basketfuls did you take up? And then they said, well, 12. Also, when I broke seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, how is it that you don't understand? Think about it. How is it that you're not getting the reference he's making about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? But how is it that you're nervous right now and going, great, who forgot the bread? When you were with me, when for 5,000 people I used five loaves. Guys, there's 13 of us here. And yes, one simple loaf. How is it that you still lack the faith, lack the belief that even the little can be made much with Jesus? In our story, we're going to answer two simple questions, and then we'll wrap up by coming back to that first question uh, to view it from another gospel, because this story is also recorded in Matthew's gospel, and it gives us one additional detail. But the two questions we'll hit, and then we'll work our way back to the first one. The two questions, very simply, are why no sign? Because Jesus tells them, I'm not going to give you a sign when the religious leaders come and demand one. But then the second question we'll hit is, what is he talking about when he addresses the leaven here? And then we'll work our way back to that idea of a sign because Mark's gospel highlights it and gives other information for us. So first and foremost, why no sign? Okay, so if we actually picture the scene of what's happening here, Jesus heads back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. We know that he's been spending time in Gentile territory with Gentiles. That was a big deal and a massive statement. But now he's back in Jewish territory. And it almost seems like as soon as he crossed the border back into the Jewish territories that instantly he's met with the religious leaders who have a whole list of frustrations with him. And it seems like the latest one that pushed him over the top was that Jesus went to those kinds of people. And we don't go to those kinds of people, Jesus. And that was enough for them. And so they come and they confront him. And they were not simply there to, to get their questions answered. They're really there just to publicly question Jesus. There's a difference. Coming not just to hear him out, but coming to bring accusation against him. In fact, it says that he, they came testing him. And our English word is very weak compared to the Greek word that's used here. This was not a friendly discussion or even like a gentleman's debate. This was a deeply hostile standoff that's taking place. You need to picture a hostile crowd where all of a sudden these people emerge to 
cross-examine Jesus, shouting accusations at him without waiting even for him to respond. That's what the word carries with it. There's a colossal difference, you know this, between asking God a question and questioning God. One is looking for and really even is still open to an answer, while the other one is just voicing a frustration, is making a statement, is often aggressively even making an accusation that becomes an excuse for rejecting and departing from Jesus. And that's what we're seeing take place here. And I do want you to know, just push pause for a second. I want you to know, I don't think God's intimidated by your questions. In fact, think about it. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel... When God looks at the promise he's made in the Garden of Eden that then is traced down to Abraham and to Abraham and then it's reiterated to his son and then later you follow the line and it's reiterated again to a guy named Jacob and God has this incredible encounter with Jacob where he wrestles with God and then he renames him in that moment Israel. It's two Hebrew words squished together that mean to contend with God. So when God looked at his people... God named them so that the nations around them would know these are the ones who would fight with me. These are the ones who'd wrestle with me. These are the ones who would contend with me. I, I'm insecure. God is not. In my insecurity, I would have named them. These are the ones that are subject to me. These are the ones that are listening to me or else I slap them around. That's, I would have stepped in that way. God's secure enough that he said, you're going to be the ones who have the freedom to come to me, to wrestle with me. Follow then through the pages of scripture. We are at the end of a long line of not people, holy churchy people who sat in big steeples and high towers communing with God and hearing from him and it was perfect and peaceful. We follow a long line of people who wrestled with God through deeply challenging circumstances and, and things that they had to face in life. And when they wrestled with them, God met them in those moments. We're invited into that. That's our heritage. So I don't think God's intimidated by our doubts or questions, and you should know you're not alone in having them. And, and the beauty is that there are great answers for what you're digging for. There are great answers for what you're wrestling with. I once heard it said by someone that as hunger prompts your body to find food, doubt is meant to prompt your mind to find reality. So you don't have to push aside your doubts. I think you get to allow them to be a catalyst for you to dig deeper into your faith to wrestle with God. But they were not coming, these people were not, with honest questions. They're coming to attack and discredit Jesus. And Jesus, remember in the history of the gospel so far, where we've walked through in order to get here, Jesus has called them out publicly for their hypocrisy. And that didn't sit well with them. Apparently, they didn't appreciate it. And now they seem back to get even with Jesus because now they're calling him out publicly. And it says in verse 12 that when that happens, when they come demanding a sign, it says that Jesus sighed deep within his spirit. One Greek linguist, he says, it, it means to draw up deep sighs from the bottom of the breast to sigh deeply. This specific Greek word, because we've talked about Jesus groaning within himself, him sighing with compassion for people. This word is actually different than any other time where we see Jesus doing that, where he's moved with compassion for someone who's hurting. And it would say that the guys watched him sigh within himself. This is a different word. This Greek word is only used in this one place. In fact, one commentator, he said it's the outcome. This word expresses the outcome of grief and indignation, of offense or exasperation in which, however, grief predominates. It prevails. It's an emotionally charged moment where what Jesus is feeling is grief, but also just exasperated with these people. 
The word is only found in one other place in the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it finds itself in the book of Lamentations. Now, if you don't know Lamentations, it describes the funeral of a city. It's this tear-stained portrait that the prophet Jeremiah paints for it of the beauty of Jerusalem now being desolate and laid in waste. Babylon has come in and destroyed the city, something God had told the people would happen if they would not repent because they were rebelling against him. And that little book then logs Jeremiah lamenting him, weeping and mourning the death of God's beautiful holy city. And if you've never read it, it's beautifully written, but it's tragically depressing in its poetic elements. It starts off, Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. It says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great amongst nations. The prince amongst the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to set the feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. It's a moment that should never have happened. It's a moment that they were warned was coming. It's a moment where even the religious leaders, the priests, in that moment, sigh. It's the same word used here for Jesus. This really specific word only used these two places in Scripture. Both carry with them the reality that there's grief and yet a sense of exasperation of going, why? It doesn't have to be this way. The, the terrible tragedy in what Jeremiah is writing is that it didn't have to happen. And the tragedy with Jesus standing here with these guys is him saying this didn't have to happen, guys. Jesus' correction to them in the past, if this is how Jesus felt, then we're to understand that his correction to them in the past was not an attempt for him to push them away. It was him drawing them near, wanting to save them from their error. He's calling them out about saying things like, well, the washing of your hands will make you right and righteous. And he explains to them, that's not the case at all, because your heart could be far from God. He wasn't just pushing them away. He was trying to draw them in and expose their own brokenness to say, you could be here with me. But now in a moment like this, it didn't have to be this way, guys. Why is it like this? He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. There's a Greek linguist, Dr. Weiss, who points out that this is a Hebrew idiom that's being used here by Jesus. It's comprised, the idiom is, of a vehement oath. It literally reads, if a sign is given to this generation, and then it cuts off. That's how the Greek actually reads. And then Jesus, in that moment, just abruptly ends and then tells the guys, we're out of here, we're getting on a boat. You see, the second half in the idiom, the second half of the oath didn't need to be repeated. It was kind of like a, it goes without saying. If a sign is given to this generation, it's kind of like when... When, not you, I can't use you as an example. It's me looking at my kids being like, if I have to tell you one more time to turn off the TV and to sit down at the table for dinner, so help me. I don't have to even say the rest of it. So help me. They know. Oh, they know. That's what Jesus is saying here. The idiom is that 
If blank, fill in that blank. If A is given, may God strike me down was the rest of it. He's saying that it's enough. Enough is enough. It's as if Jesus' other miracles weren't enough. It's their saying, really, that they weren't enough. They weren't impressive enough. And how many signs, then, did they need to see? I mean, weren't all his miracles good enough? Remember, when they came to him, because he's doing the miraculous, he's healing people, they come to him and they accuse him publicly. It's the power of Satan that gives you the ability to do this. And Jesus says, well, then Satan is a divided kingdom, because why would Satan fight against himself? Because by the power that I have, the power of God, I'm driving demons out of people. So why would a house be divided? Because a house can't stand if it's divided. Why would a kingdom be divided? It doesn't make sense, guys. But then Jesus would do even more miraculous things, more healings, more feedings, these miraculous works, and they'd look still and say, it's not enough. They weren't asking for just any old miracle. They're asking, it says, for a sign from heaven. They wanted something like their forefathers had seen generations before. Bring fire down like Elijah saw. Bring manna from heaven like Moses himself had seen because five loaves to feed 5,000 wasn't good enough because seven loaves to feed 4,000 didn't do it for them. You know, there are two times in the Gospels where Jesus is approached by people and they say, do a sign for us, perform a miracle, and he says no to them. One of them is in his hometown of Nazareth, and then now is this situation with these religious leaders who come demanding a sign or they're holding it over his head or this is it. We refuse to believe. They said, do something, then we'll believe. But that's not faith, is it? And without faith, it's impossible to please him. Really, what Jesus does is he flips that on its head and says, believe and then you'll see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus seems to see their request for a sign as kind of a sign against them. A sign to him that this generation, the, the prevailing thought of the religious leaders of the day, that they were determined to, to hear and yet not hear. To see and yet not see. To hear and to see and to choose not to believe. And for them, it, it would be a costly thing to leave their identity as a Pharisee or a Herodian or a Sadducee and to embrace Jesus and his kingdom. It was a big step that meant leaving their identity and ideology that held onto them so very tightly. I mean, think about it. For us, to embrace Jesus and his kingdom, it's not merely accepting Jesus in our hearts. We're yielding to God as Lord of our lives. We almost trivialize it. It's beautiful that, yes, I'm allowing Christ to come into me, but in order for that to happen, I am surrendering to a holy and just God who is all-powerful. Yes, he loves me, but I'm standing here saying, I can't believe that you're even looking my direction. I'll give my life. I repent. I'm yielding to him as Lord. It's leaving my expectations and my disappointments. It's laying down my ideology about, about, well, I thought that these would be the things that would make my life better or make the world right again. It's repenting of my rebellion. It's picking up my cross, Jesus will tell us, and choosing to follow him in faith even when it cost me things that are dear to me. Now, in our story, we can't help but wonder, Jesus, why not just give them a sign? Just perform another miracle. Well, he's not doing it because he knows that it's not going to change anything. It's funny because we can sound like these people, and then when heaven seems silent, we get angry 
But if we're honest, we like these people, the sign is not what's going to change our hearts. They'd just make another demand. They'd come up with another excuse. Why no sign? Because it would have never been good enough. Okay, but the second question, what's the leaven that he warns his disciples about? What's the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? Because in our story is Jesus' disciples, and he, they, they, they hit the road proverbially. They hop on a boat, and, and the disciples realize, we left in such a hurry. Oh, my, we, we forgot to even bring enough bread for the group for our road trip. And the conversation on the boat is about bread, and Jesus interrupts them. Verse 15, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, the good news is they were as confused as we are when we read this and go, what in the world is he talking about? They also said the same thing and thought like, oh, maybe he's just poking fun at the fact that we forgot to grocery shop before we left. Listen, Jesus perceives here that they don't understand what he's saying. That's why he rattles off five rhetorical questions that are all being answered in a negative sense to show them like, hey, I get that you're not tracking with me. Why do you perceive and not understand? Yeah, we don't. Is your heart still hardened? Do you still not understand? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And don't you remember what I've previously done? Listen, if Jesus fed 5,000 with so little, why worry and argue over a single loaf that remained when Jesus is present with you and when Jesus can make much out of little? Jesus steps into the situation and reminds them of the two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the four. And he's emphasizing that they don't have to worry about food, but simultaneously, he's also making it very clear that what he was speaking of was not actual physical leaven. He's not just talking about a loaf of bread, like watch out for the bread that those guys bake. It's not very good, or it might make you sick. He's not saying that. He's taking a physical thing and attaching to it a spiritual truth. This is something Jesus will do again and again in his life and teachings. He'd take an everyday item, in this case it's leaven or yeast, and he'll demonstrate with that illustration a spiritual truth and reality. And that's what he does here. Now think about leaven itself or yeast. It's subtle and pervasive. Leaven is subtle and pervasive. It's subtle in that its impact is beneath the surface. It's not food coloring that you just pour across the top. It's not dusting a cake with powdered sugar across the top. No, it's something that's subtle in that its impact is beneath the surface and therefore goes largely unseen or undetective, and yet simultaneously it's pervasive. In that, leaven, yeast, will spread rapidly and permeate the whole of the loaf. Now for them, Part of this was kind of a, a gambling thing. It was a crapshoot because their form of, of yeast or leaven was kind of like our sourdough starter. It was unused starter that was like a week old that was allowed to ferment that they would then, because of the bacteria and all the things happening in it, that they would insert little bits of that into a loaf. But if it had gone too long, that starter would spoil, the leaven, the yeast would spoil. So what would permeate the new loaf would create a completely toxic, unusable, broken loaf. A useless loaf because it was allowed to subtly yet pervasively influence and impact, spoil the whole of the loaf. That's what Jesus is warning about here. That's the imagery he's using. Now, by warning the disciples about the hypocrisy or leaven of the Pharisees, Jesus sought to keep his followers 
from an insidious, a dangerously subtle influence that would undermine faith in him and faith in his gospel. Now, think about this for us. Followers of Jesus today should heed, I think, this same warning. The same warning from Jesus and guard against attitudes and teachings, ideologies and philosophies that would distort the true gospel of Jesus and his kingdom of grace. When Matthew records this same story, Jesus actually includes a third group that he warns them against. It's not just the Pharisees and the Herodians, but he also adds the Sadducees. There was something Jesus saw in that three different groups of people, in those three groups of people that he was warning against, saying that you and I ought to safeguard ourselves from their ideology. Okay, now think about it. Is there a parallel here? The warning for them, is there application for us? Is there a parallel between these ancient groups and their ideologies that they touted, that they professed, that they taught, that they peddled? And then is there a parallel between that and our modern 21st century world? Well, it's kind of hard when you honestly start to think through these things because it's kind of puzzling that Jesus groups these three people together because they were more different than they were alike. So when he says, watch out for these people, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they are more different than they were similar. And so here's where I'm asking you, get nerdy with me just for a couple of minutes. Take a deep breath. Here we go. The Pharisees were uptight about absolutely everything. Think of them. They wanted God to be as exclusive as they were. Moralism was their poison that they snuck into the loaf. A legalistic approach to God and the way that they measured themselves against everyone else was that same legalistic standard. And Jesus would argue with the Pharisees several times about their habit of putting man-made tradition above the needs of people, even putting their man-made traditions above the teachings of the law of God. The Pharisees uptight about everything. Moralism was the poison that snuck into the loaf that subtly and yet per pervasively would spread and make the whole of it toxic, would change the beauty of Jesus' gospel of grace into just moralism. In Matthew 16, he'd include the Sadducees in this comment here, in this little vignette. And for the Sadducees, they didn't believe in an afterlife. Materialism was the leaven that permeated their lives because without a hope for tomorrow, it makes you greedy for today. And that was true of them. They fought for positions of power and prestige within the community because they couldn't understand what the old, pro old prophets had said in the Old Testament uh, about a spiritual realm because they couldn't see what it would be like to be in an afterlife, to be united with God and have a spiritual and a physical realm collide, heaven and earth coming together because they couldn't understand those things as modern men. They were dismissive of those things. And so they lived only for the material world. And then the other group is Herod and his followers, the Herodians. They were not, not really classified in, in history as a religious sect because they had such a strong political agenda that their political agenda eclipsed their loyalty to God. They, they wanted God to establish Herod as the king so that the world would be forced into the mold of their liking. Today we call this religious nationalism where our loyalty to a political ideology seems to eclipse even our loyalty to God, where we become convinced that God will work through our governing powers to force the world back into a mold of righteousness, that that's what will fix the world. The Pharisees, it was moralism. For the Sadducees, it's materialism. And then for the Herodians, it's religious nationalism. 
Now just allow me in the 21st century to simplify these three groups. And I think you'll agree that yes, they're very different from one another and that their mentalities, maybe you'll also agree that their mentalities, mentalities still exist within the 21st century church, even in America. For the Herodians, it's, it's people today who say, I want God to work in the political system and I want everyone else to be as passionate as I am about these politics. And I'm frustrated that they're not. It's for the Pharisees standing up and saying, I want separation between us and them, those outsiders. I want everyone else to be as passionate as I am about being against the world system, against the politicians, against movies and music, against two-piece bathing suits and, and those kinds of people, the sinners. It's moralism. It's the Sadducees. And, and, and listen, if the Pharisees were guilty of adding to the law, the Sadducees were guilty of taking away from it. They took away the bits that they under, didn't understand and didn't like about it, and they discarded them. So for them, it would be the people who'd stand up and say, well, I want all of us to look like and act like as much of the world as possible. I want everyone to, to just be as okay as I am with what everyone chooses to do around us. Uh, how, how come you, you care about how people choose to live? They're okay. I'm okay. We should all be okay with whatever choice they make. It's this materialism, and, and it's a progressivism. Jesus did not say that those people were leaven, but that their teachings were leaven. That's what Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, gives that little distinction, that it was their teachings, their ideology, that was like a toxic leaven inserted into the loaf that would taint the whole of it. They, they, their teachings, like the leaven, the acceptance of a little bit would be so subtle and yet permeate and have a massive impact in the whole of someone's life and in the whole of the way that they view the world. Now think about this. We're almost done. What's the byproduct of allowing just a smidgen of that leaven into our thinking, into our faith and view of Jesus' beautiful gospel of grace? What's the byproduct of just taking a little bit of it? Well, the answer to that question becomes clear when we look at what they actually shared in common. Here's how they were similar. We know how they were different. How were they similar? All three had wrong, selfishly motivated views of how God should work. And they were extremely disappointed by the fact that he didn't do things their way. And because of that deep-seated disappointment, they refused to believe and dug their heels in in unbelief. That's what they shared in common. Unmet expectations and unbelief. Their unmet expectations shaped and, and all of a sudden, like a, a flower that blossomed out of those roots, it blossomed in this toxic standoff with Jesus. It blossomed in an unwillingness to believe and to yield to him. There is a huge difference between doubt that's an openness to believe. That's, that's struggling to get there, though. There's a huge difference between doubt and unbelief. Unbelief is a refusal to believe. And my friends, we need to be aware of both how we preach the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to others, and we need to be aware of what we preach to ourselves. Remember, as a few weeks ago, we just made the observation, we are all philosophers, we're all sociologists, we're all preachers, and we're constantly preaching an ideology to ourselves all throughout the day, every day of our lives. We're preaching an ideology about what's going to make society right, what's going to make our relationships right, what's going to make ourselves right. We have to be careful what it is we're preaching. 
We need to be careful to not insert certain things into that gospel, the gospel that we preach to others and what we preach to ourselves. It's the leaven of the Pharisees we have to watch out for, that it shouldn't be found in the gospels we've embraced. And it's present, it's there already if we're full of resentment towards others because they aren't trying as hard as we are and because we're simultaneously full of resentment, not just towards them, but towards God himself because he isn't rewarding me for all the hard work I'm doing. He's not giving me what I feel that I deserve. If you have that kind of resentment, then the little leaven of the Pharisees has already entered the loaf, the lump, and is beginning to permeate and impact in a toxic way our lives. It's the leaven of Herod that, that must not be found in the gospel that we've embraced and that we preach to ourselves and the world around us. But that leaven of Herod, it's already present in ourselves if we're angry and dismissive and irritated with those who don't see our government the way that we do. When we divide everyone into two groups of vaccinated and unvaccinated or right and left and blue and red, acceptable in the end and rejectable. Righteous and unrighteous, that's how we see everybody, because those who followed Herod viewed their hope through a lens of if only we can get the right leader to power, then he can mold the world back into right standing, into righteousness. The leaven of the Sadducees must not be found in the gospel that we embrace. Now think about this, the leaven of the Sadducees, it's not just present in the 21st century wave of the prosperity gospel that comes to say that God will give you whatever your heart desires. It's also present when we find ourselves excusing our sin and the sin that's present and prevalent in our culture. Because what God had said is dismissed like the Sadducees because we have decided that it doesn't make sense for us. It doesn't make sense anymore in our modern world. So it no longer applies to our life or to our times in these, these advanced days that we live in. You see, for the Sadducees, it's, it's that the scriptures had, had talked about the reality that existed outside of a physical realm, outside of a material world, and they dismissed it because they couldn't understand it. And for us today, what the scriptures say about those very same things and what the scriptures say about gender and about sex and sexuality are being just as quickly dismissed. That we've commingled the gospel of Jesus' grace and a dismissive attitude of these things because our modern culture stands in such contrast to what God says. But we shouldn't be surprised that the culture's contrary to what God says. We're not helping anyone. We're not helping anyone by trying to make Jesus' message more palatable by removing repentance. You know, several weeks ago, we discussed Jesus being rejected by those who are most familiar with him, his hometown of Nazareth. And we observed and admitted that it's easy for us to think that we figured Jesus out. But if we step back and are honest, sometimes when we think we figured Jesus out, the truth is he looks a lot more like me then I look like him. And the way that I know that that's happened, that I've now shaped Jesus into my image so that I don't have to change, rather than me yielding to him to be shaped into his image, the way that I know that it's happened is when he no longer surprises me, when he no longer challenges me, or when he no longer offends me. If we are not surprised by Jesus or challenged by him or maybe even in moments offended by what he says and teaches, then maybe it's because we've no longer, we've stopped, we've ceased from molding our lives, adhering to him, allowing him to reshape us into his image and instead we've given up on that and we've decided let's just reshape Jesus to look like us. 
Listen, what was true of those who stood before Jesus that day can become true of us too. We too can hold too tight to an ideology we've embraced that Jesus, we've hold on so tightly to that ideology that the truth is that Jesus himself no longer becomes appealing. Where the gospel of Jesus, grace and kingdom is now an irritation and even an offense to us. Listen, all those Jesus addressed in the story will in the end, they'll oppose Jesus because they've realized that he's in opposition to the ideology that they embraced and held on so tightly to. It was their identity. Rather than humbling themselves, they will turn on Jesus, and in the end, they will work together not just to oppose him, but you know the story. If you fast forward to the end of the book, they work together to dispose of him. It's this group of people who will come together for the first time in history, working together on the same team to get rid of Jesus. But can these things be said of us? Are these, are these in us? Our legalism, our materialism, our nationalism, our progressivism, if we don't repent of them then we're going to end up finding ourselves resenting Jesus rather than being made more like him. Okay, so here's where we land. And that's, I told you, we'd go back to that first question of why no sign. So, so what's the one sign that Jesus would offer according to Matthew's gospel? He doesn't just say no sign. He makes the statement, no sign. Nothing will be given to you or I'd be accursed of God. That's the idea, the idiom, remember, that he uses. But then he adds a caveat in Matthew 16, verse 4, he says, A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then Jesus left them and went away. You'd assume that because Mark is writing predominantly to a Gentile audience that he doesn't reference Jonah here because they, the, the reference would have been lost on them. They wouldn't have tracked with Mark to even know or understand what he's discussing. Mark's Gentile readers might not have been familiar with Jonah, but the astounding thing about Jonah is that for three days he'd be in the belly of a whale, of a fish, a great fish, that he would be as good as dead, but at that third day he'd emerge again alive. In fact, again, Jesus explaining it himself in Matthew's gospel in an earlier chapter when the Pharisees had come and asked for a sign, in chapter 12 he said it this way, he said, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The sign of Jonah, from the outside looking in, was, was a death, a burial, deep beneath the surface, and a future resurrection. Please hear me, if, if you and I are still waiting for God to do something, just give us a sign that will cause me to trust you then we're probably in the same camp with these individuals that stood before him. Those who had already seen enough, but it was never good enough for them. Tragically, it would never be good enough for them. This then becomes the sign that heaven offers. It's heaven's greatest sign displayed for us, the sign of Jonah, the sign of the resurrection. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it makes this statement, that he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. It's translated by irrefutable evidence. 
There is great reason to trust in Jesus. If nothing else, the greatest of the signs he left us was the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus, who would leave this earth, who would, who would give his life, who would bleed and die and then be laid in a tomb and after three days rise from the dead, emerge from the grave alive. There is incredible reason to believe that. I'd love to get into it, but we already said we were on the home stretch, so I won't go there. But I'd sure love to talk to you. If you're struggling to believe, let's talk about the resurrection. The most troubling part, quite possibly, about this whole passage is that Jesus doesn't just point out the error of the outsider. Did you catch this? He's not just pointing out the error of the outsider, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians. He made it clear that that same error existed in the insiders, in the disciples. The disciples had clearly heard Jesus' teachings as well. They saw Jesus move and work and do miracles. Although their ears had heard, although their eyes had, had seen, they were yet to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. This Old Testament verbiage is used again and again by Jesus where the people of God overlooked the work of God and, and God in the Old Testament say, your eyes have seen, your ears have heard, and yet you still haven't seen, you still haven't heard. And Jesus is using it again and again. The issue was not with their eyes or their ears, it was their hearts. One writer would say it this way, the disciples' major problem is not simply their blindness, but their failure to recognize that they're blind at all. They were no different than the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or Herod, which was, I think, Jesus' point here. Their view of Jesus was still very flawed. And the proof of that was their meltdown. They're on the boat. Great, who forgot the bread? And Jesus is like, haven't you seen? Haven't you heard? Weren't you there? All of a sudden, they're under pressure and freaking out. They've overlooked the goodness of Jesus, the care of Jesus, the provision of Jesus, the plan of Jesus. Hear me, please. The presence of Jesus with them. It's like they've overlooked it all. They have eyes that have not seen. They have ears that still haven't heard. They have a heart that still hasn't fully yielded to Jesus. Worry so often is unbelief in disguise, isn't it? Isn't that true? It's nothing more. Worry is often nothing more than unbelief in disguise. And this is really our point. This is our main point of the day. What does this have to do with me? When did you lose, or when did the gospel lose, I should say, its great power in your life? When did the gospel lose its power in your life? The power to give joy in your life. When was that lost? The gospel's power to, to bring and to give peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. The gospel's power to give comfort because the God of all comfort is with you. The gospel's power to give hope because we do not mourn as others mourn without hope because we believe in a resurrection. We believe in a reunion. When did the gospel lose its power in your life, the power to give you abundant life, an incredible quality of life that's not saved for heaven there, but is experienced when the king of heaven is here residing in you and you in him because he's done all that was needed for you? When did the gospel lose its power in your life? Was it lost during an election cycle? Well, then maybe it's the leaven of Herod. Was it lost when a bill arrived in the mail and you opened it and, ah, oh, what are we going to do? Then maybe it's the leaven of the Sadducees who only thought about a material world 
because they had been dismissive about the reality of a spiritual realm and a spiritual God who's very present in the materialistic world, who can provide and who promises that he is preparing a place for us and that that is our home, citizens of heaven, and that we're just sojourners passing through here. Or respectfully, was it an illness or a diagnosis that stripped the gospel of its power? Because yes, those moments are hard, but we do not mourn like the the world around us, a godless world mourns, because we mourn with hope. Yes, we still mourn, Jesus mourned, but we mourn with hope of a resurrection. When did the gospel lose its power in your life? Was it when unmet expectations happened, that things that you believe you've earned and deserved and you did your part, If there was a deal, you held up your end of the deal, but you haven't received what you believe you deserve. And the leaven of the Pharisees was inserted, and the beauty of the gospel lost its power, because now it's no longer about grace. Now it's about my best efforts and me feeling like I've done enough that now I'm resentful towards you because you haven't given me what I deserve. When did the gospel lose its power in our lives? Those are examples of things that have done that to me, where I look and go, I didn't have to look around the room and like pick the easy fruit, looking at other people like, I think this is your thing. I look in a mirror and go, gosh, these are the things in my life that deeply impact me. And so to me, like the disciples, Jesus gives a really humbling rebuke. But it was not a rebuke without hope. Verse 17 Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still? Is it still hard? Do you hear those little two comments? You haven't yet believed? Is it that you still, you still don't get it? Hear the hope that Jesus has in that moment. He hasn't given up hope. He seems to quietly and patiently expect that the guys, the disciples, that in time they would perceive and their hearts would grow soft. Jesus believed there was a possibility in them for a change of heart. And it would happen for all of them except for one. Whose ideology, whose value system, whose identity was something he held on to so tightly that so much leaven was inserted into the lump that in the end, when push came to shove, Judas said, I'm out. When did the gospel lose its power? My friends, turn to Jesus again. We need to humble ourselves and repent and fall on mercy and grace. Mercy and grace that are free to me, but not cheap for him. That's the gospel. Jesus, our attention turns back your direction. Jesus, even in our relationship with you, our attention, the weight goes back your direction. Because Jesus, you have paid it all. You've done all that was needed for us to be forgiven and made right. For you to now come into us, for us to be found in you, for us to be seated in heavenly places, for us to be justified, 
for us to be in a process of being sanctified by you, Jesus. You who began the good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Jesus, we turn your direction.